The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit feeding your Gorilla Krispy Kremes and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 337 with guest Jim Weber, recorded live Monday, April 7, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who wishes he could live upstairs from the gumbo shop, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Carl Franklin back here for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks with my friend Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm, uh... Down in New Orleans at the moment. Don't you love technology? I'm back home only for another day. I'm off to Las Vegas after this, and you're in New Orleans. But does it matter? Not at all. Does it matter? No. It might sound a little weird, but, you know, that's New Orleans for you. <laughs> Rained like crazy during the jazz festival yesterday. I, I, what, how's the city look? Is it back? Well, you know, we haven't gone to the Ninth Ward, but um, the French Quarter is totally intact. It's Bourbon Street is rocking as it always is. And, uh, you know, the, the jazz festival itself at the fairground was just wonderful. Awesome. So, yeah. No, we're having a good time. Well, and we know our friend Shirley Brothers was talking about moving Dev Connection Spring to New Orleans. She was, wasn't she? And that's, that's exciting to me. I'd love to get back there. Yeah. Don't it's know if it's going to happen. It's still party town. You know, it's hard to touch the Marriott World Center. For, you know, not that I'm a huge fan of Orlando, but it really is a great place. Speaking of conferences, we have a special promotional offer. Oh, yeah. Don't we? For TechEd attendees. Yes. TechEd US Orlando. Two weeks worth. First two weeks of June. So I guess if you use the, uh, we've gotten together with Microsoft and have offered our listeners uh, a one week window for if they use the, if they register with the code TechEd Rocks, they can get $200 off the ticket. Which uh, brings the ticket price to uh, seventeen ninety five, plus a free worldwide tour TechEd T-shirt, and all they got to do is register with TechEd Rocks, 
at the right. TechEd registration website. So when you go to the the to the TechEd registration site, and you can register for either week with this code, it's totally up to you. If you want to go to Dev Week, you want to go to IT Week. And if you go to Dev Week, you'll see Carl and I on stage for .NET Rocks. And if you go to IT right. Week, you'll see Greg and I on stage for Run As Radio. But it's seventeen ninety five, two hundred bucks off if you use TechEd Rocks in the uh, the RSVP code box when you register. Well, Richard, let's get into uh, Better Know a Framework. Get this over with. All right, sir, what do you got? So I'm going to go back to system.io and to the path uh, class, system.io.path. And this is really cool. It's got all those methods for dealing with file names and path names. Cool. Like if you have a file name that somebody has entered in from a dialog box or something like that, and you want just the file name, you can call get file name on system.io.path. Or if you want just the directory name, you know, the, the, the full path to the directory name, you can call get directory name. Uh, the, there's also a get temp file name, which creates a uniquely named zero byte temporary file on disk and returns the full path of that file. So, you know, all those things around file names and, and even temporary files is right there in system.io.path. Excellent. And I always wondered how you did that too. When you need to get a, a, a unique file just for long enough to do something with it and then toss it out. That's all built in. Well, yeah, if you're like me, you write it yourself, but you don't have to do that anymore. No, that's what the .NET Framework's for. That's it. So you got an email? I do indeed. And this is from Josh Tenenbaum. And, and Josh is politically correct because it starts off, Carl and Richard, or Richard and Carl. Uh-huh. As I'm listening <laughs> to your show, I have to take exception with one thing. And he's talking about alt.net. The stories uh-huh. are done deadline comment hits close to home. I say that because at some point you have to make a decision to do something. I understand if it's not correct, whatever it is, you will still have to do it again. But we run into this problem where the customer keeps wanting to change what we do and not give in on the delivery date. You don't really mention that the ship date has to slip when you, quote, write requirements in Jello, close quote. Yeah. Well, I can't argue with you there. Definitely, we get into analysis paralysis, which is why I think the whole agile thing is so powerful of let's just take a tiny bite and get results in a couple of weeks and then talk about what we'd change. So that even though you know you're going to be wrong, at least you're wrong on the smallest possible piece. Yep. Anyway, that's good for a mug. Thanks, Josh. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. Well, Richard, I'm really excited about uh, today's guest. Uh, Dr. Jim Weber is the global architecture lead for ThoughtWorks, where he works on dependable web services-based systems for clients worldwide. Jim was formerly a senior researcher with the UK eScience program, where he developed strategies for aligning grid computing with web services practices and architectural patterns for dependable service-oriented computing. Jim has extensive web services architecture and development experience as an architect with Arjuna Technologies and was the lead developer with Hewlett Packard on the industry's first web services transaction solution. Jim is an active speaker in the web services space and co-author of the book Developing Enterprise Web Services and Architect's Guide. Jim holds a BSc in computing science and PhD in parallel computing, both from the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. His blog is located at jim.weber.name. Dot name. Yeah, it's Where's some that? magic. Where's I that have no hiding? idea how it works. Wow. Like, yeah, they released a bunch of new TLDs a few years ago, and dot name was one of them. I, I grabbed a few, but I eventually let them expire. 
Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't even own Weber.name, so I'm not, I, I have no idea what trickery makes that all work. It just does. Yeah, that's right. They have to be, they're controlled through the, the registrar. So you could, it just allows you to, to map things out. It's, it's really kind of wacky. Yeah. Well, I have the feeling we're in the presence of greatness here, uh, Richard. Well, the, so the story goes, uh, a fan, uh, Gregor Hagstrom from uh, Stockholm, Sweden, wrote us a great email a while ago. I don't know that I ever actually read it on the air, but one of the things he said right at the email, off the cuff kind of, is, hey, guys, get Jim Weber on the show. He does this presentation called Gorilla SOA that just kills and gave me a link. And so I clicked on it and I watched it. And I'm like, oh, my Lord. We have to get this guy on the show because, you know, most of the folks we talk to around SOA tend to be very abstract. You know, it's tough to really get your handle on it. And everything Jim said was so down to earth, I immediately sent him an email. It took us a couple of months to get the scheduling worked out. But I think uh, the fans are just going to love this. This is a great, great topic. Jim, let me let me ask you a little bit about the history. Were you there at the original soap spec with uh, the guys, uh, you know, the... All the guys at Microsoft and um, who's the other guy, Dave Weiner and and that whole bunch. No, uh, my involvement started probably a year or so later when the first um, .NET framework came out, and it had support for SOAP-based web services. Uh, me and a good friend of mine, a guy called Savas Parastatidis, who now works at Microsoft, uh, were kind of uh, intoxicated by this stuff. Um, because integration had been a real pain in the backside up until right. then. We were both, you know, Corba guys, and um, we just thought, you know, the notion of using XML for interoperability was just very sensible. And that was really uh, when my involvement with the whole sphere of web services at SOA started. Yeah, and, and the whole term SOA has been thrown around quite a lot. It's been very difficult to sort of get everybody to agree on on what, what it means. Uh, you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, you browse through um, any SOA bookshelf. You, know, you go down your favorite Barnes & Noble or something or browse through Amazon, and just there's a huge variance in what people mean by SOA. Um, you know, at one end of the spectrum, it's exposing databases through WSDL-centric web services. At the other end of the spectrum, there's all this you know, heavyweight integration middleware and, and uh, whole you know, categorizations of services and taxonomies of services and that kind of stuff. And... Um, I just really think both ends of both ends of that spectrum are, are uh, fairly unhelpful, and um, we need to start thinking about SOA in more business-centric terms, the same way that we think about you know, other software in business-centric terms. If we can't make a case to the business owners, we just can't get that technology installed. It's never going to happen. Absolutely. So I have this feeling that um, in, in IT we, we kind of get carried away by the by the shiny new object, and we want to we want to put that everywhere. So we hear about these services and we instantly run off and want to build services. And we think that we're adding business value. And yet we tend to have very little collaboration with the business. And the tools that we have at our disposal, the, the particularly the integration middleware and the whole pile of WS standards, really constitutes a bit of a barrier between us and the business because the business doesn't understand any of this stuff. Well, I'm still trying to get a handle on the difference between a web service and this whole SOA thing that sure. if I use web services, aren't I automatically SOA? Isn't that just, you know, if one's an architecture, one's a technology? Sure. Um, so I, I guess this is where it comes down to a matter of personal opinion and preference. For me, um, a service is just a technical mechanism for hosting a business process. 
And often I'll choose web services as my uh, deployment technology because that model tends to fit quite naturally with the workflows that, that I'm automating, with the business process I'm automating. So because web services is kind of message centric, it gives me quite a good collaboration point with my business users who themselves tend to be, tend to be quite document centric. So I can uh, ask those guys to explain to me their workflows, the, you know, the triggers in terms of documents that get consumed and produced and so on. And I have a reasonable chance of re uh, reflecting that in the web services that I build. But I would, you know, to, to kind of give it in my mind, the SOA tick box, the service that I build has to encapsulate something which is completely business meaningful. Whereas if I did what, you know, the toolkits make so easy to do, just wrap Whistle-centric web services around everything, I don't really think you've got an SOA there. I think you've got a bunch of services which aren't really representative of your business. They're probably just representative of, you know, database schemas and, and, and legacy apps that you've, that you've managed to surface through Whistle and so on, rather than being, for me, a good SOA, which is uh, a ref a, a, an automated um, computerized reflection of your business processes in the real world. Suffice it to say that there's some tenets of SOA that, re that you know, the first thing I think of, if I was going to sit down and architect a, a service-oriented architecture, I, w I need to think separation of concerns on the, at the uh, business process level, right? And doesn't that sort of get my little islands together in terms of what are these different services going to be and w what databases go where? And isn't that really the, the trick? Absolutely. So I think you, you, you've, you've really hit the nail on the head there. And when I'm working with a client to develop an SOA, I actually don't talk about services or computers or any of that stuff. In fact, uh, the, the clients I currently work for in North America, um, we actually instituted during, the, uh, during one of our short analysis phases a swear jar where if anyone said the word database or computer or system, they were fined, and uh, we doubled the fine every day. And that was a really good mechanism of focusing people's minds on really what the, uh, what the business workflows were rather than um, jumping ahead to technical solutions. So the, the framework I like to provide is if I'm um, – a, a typical example would be if I'm a customer and, I, and uh, you, you're, you're at the end of the workflow, there's revenue – Help me to fill in the blocks in between. Help me to fill in the steps in between. So as we go through filling in those gaps, you know, building out those workflows, we start to see that naturally some of the steps in those workflows start to clump together. And this is a first approximation of our SOA because we've got a bunch of business-related steps that are naturally, uh, you know, that are naturally cohesive that we might choose to clump into one service. And then we'll iteratively refine that until we have a model that we're happy with and this becomes our first cut of a solution architecture. I would think this is where an SOA is going to sink or swim, right, in, you know, in the architecture phase. Absolutely. At this phase, you're bringing together the business stakeholders with the IT stakeholders, and they're both agreeing on a clear vision for what the business looks like. And this is kind of important because you know, yeah. this is the IT people learning how the business works and learning to see how related business functionality gets uh, put together in a cohesive way before we then go down into solution architecture and figure out how we're going to deploy that onto computerized systems in the enterprise. Now, Jim, how is this different from how we build any application? This sounds like the normal cocktail napkin process I go through with the stakeholder just to figure out any application I'm going to build for them. Absolutely. And I think that's also that's perfectly accurate. 
What we're doing here is we're taking the same kind of sensible approaches we've used over the last decade or so where we've built individual apps, and we're applying those enterprise scale. So we're using those same, dare I use the word, agile-like techniques, so you know, incremental-based uh, techniques where we, where we bring together the key stakeholder groups. But instead of doing that for a particular application, you know, a particular uh, potential silo within a department, we're taking a broader view. So it sounds like I'm going to be talking mostly to to middle and and relatively senior management about the whole of the enterprise to try and find these services. Absolutely. I mean, you don't. I mean, um, to reduce risk, you may not want to do it at whole of enterprise, but you certainly want to do it at a scale which is um, meaningful to the business, but doesn't jeopardize that. So I would shy away from you know, bet the whole business style SOA transformations because they are risky. I do think that good SOA, like good application development, um, can be done incrementally. I think as enterprise architects, we've we've historically been very big bang and, and we've worked in very grandiose gestures. And yet those same techniques which serve the application development community so well really do serve the EA community too. Well, Jim, you, you, Gorilla SOA is sort of like the ultimate agile expression, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 I mean, it doesn't mean that uh, there's no architecture involved. And what I meant when I said uh, that it's going to sink or swim uh, on the whiteboard is that once you get into the implementation, uh, you know, with an SOA, you have let's let's talk implementation. You have not just one database, but you have databases in these little islands. And if you if you don't have the separation right, now you're dropping tables from one and adding them to another, and you can see how the complexity kind of can get out of hand at, at the implementation layer uh, level if you're if you're moving things around. Absolutely, and and that's one of the the hardest things for traditional um, data and enterprise architects to get their heads around. That in a good SOA, your data model will absolutely be quite denormalized, but you will have a very normalized information model. So certain mm. services will be authoritative for certain line line of business data even though there may be caching and non-authoritative copies of that data um, uh, consumed by other services. But you're right that if you, if you get your business functionality misplaced at the architecture level, you will then have to refactor um, later on. And I would think so that refactoring an SOA has got to be a little more complex than refactoring a, a single silo application. Absolutely. So I, I completely agree there that if you've got a single siloed application, even a large application, if it's well written, refactoring is um, not a trivial proposition, but relatively straightforward. We have the tools, we know how to do it, we have good practices around that. To refactor at enterprise level really is where your governance comes in. So you have to um, really go back to the business and, and you, need to, you need them to understand, well, you need them to drive um, you know, which particular business area is uh, the authoritative owner for, for a particular piece of functionality. And from that, you can derive the information and data needs to uh, support that process. Now, if we happen to have got it wrong up front, then our governance processes have to kick in and we'll have to figure out how to transfer some particular uh, business process from being hosted in one service with, of course, all of its databases and, and, and logic and so on and get that moved out into another service. That tends to be a fairly uncommon uh, thing. It's um, it's not um, unheard of, but it tends to be uncommon if you've got broad agreement um, up front at the architecture level from your business stakeholders and you're developing incrementally. So um, if you have the notion of teams 
which live with the services for a long time and projects which intersect those services, as you see your service ecosystem developing, you can often spot potential problems where you think, wait a minute, we may have made the wrong call here. And before you've got too far into uh, delivering that particular piece of functionality across your services, you can go back to your business stakeholders, validate that you've really got their processes uh, correct, and then make a decision about where you want to uh, actually deploy that software to automate that process. And now we're sort of getting into what Gorilla SOA is all about. Sure. So, I mean, it, it's probably um, instructive to think about how you know, big SOA works. And the, the metaphor I've really been using there is the big SOA is really about mobilizing an army. You're, you're thinking about a kind of large campaign, large number of developers, large number of you know, management professionals to, 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 you know, to keep the cogs oiled and so on, and logistics. And, and it really is like you know, mobilizing a march against, against you know, St. Petersburg. It's, uh, it's a long, drawn-out campaign in miserable weather through thick and thin, and the outcome is pretty awful for both sides, typically. Um, Guerrilla SOA, on the other hand, is somewhat akin to what I'm calling a coordinated set of skirmishes. And, and the crux really there is, is that it is coordinated. Some of the Guerrilla SOA detractors have kind of said, well, this is just, you know, cowboy coding at enterprise scale. And I, and I really don't think that's the case. What I want to do when I'm engaging someone to deliver an SOA is make sure that I, I'm doing it in, a, in as low risk practical way as possible. Mm. So I want to be able to break down my set of um, uh, deliveries into something that is business meaningful from the off. So I'm delivering business value early and then continue to deliver small chunks of in, you know, of business value which my which my employers can get immediate return on investment from as soon as possible. So as an enterprise architect, when I'm looking at a guerrilla SOA engagement, I'm looking at taking the most important workflows or business processes first and getting them implemented in, in a service or across a small number of services and delivering that into production early. Jim, where do you see the SOA primarily living? Is this all about providing services beyond the enterprise or providing services within the enterprise? For the stuff that we've been discussing so far, I really think it's uh, in the enterprise. I think the the promise of um, you know internet scale SOA um, with obviously a few uh, large notable exceptions really is only emerging at the moment. So I'm really thinking about guerrilla SOA as a technique for doing enterprise architecture. And so this is really about being able to centralize key resources so we don't keep recoding them. I think it's about having an authoritative automated business process in the right place at the right time. So I've kind of sidestepped your question there a little deliberately because I'm, I'm, I'm not so keen on the notion of, of centralizing and that kind of stuff. If you happen to have a business process which looks similar to mine but actually is different, then I don't mind that flourishing in the same SOA ecosystem. I think the drive towards um, completely dry systems often is a bit of a uh, holy grail that we never reach. Um, you, you see this you know, in, in approaches where people have decided they're going to create a single enterprise messaging standard, for example. So they go away and they develop all of the schemas and so on, and, and they build this marvelous enterprise Esperanto, except by the time they've finished doing that large job, they get back and the enterprise has moved on and the language is no longer fit for purpose. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to stay on the business context of this. I'm thinking about the customer service. 
yeah. that I want one place where I can identify customers, I can check what their credit rating is, I can check their contact history across the enterprise, you know, one service that does all of that, because every application that I'm building within my enterprise touches a customer in some way. Right. So customer service is probably, and, uh, and this may be a little controversial, but customer service to me does not um, give me any business process knowledge. I understand that we have customer information that the enterprise runs on, right? I mean, this stuff's critically important. But the idea of a customer service doesn't make a lot of sense because it doesn't do, it doesn't sound like it does any active data processing. Right. Now, some of the things you did mention just then, for example, your credit rating. Credit rating is probably a very sensible service because it involves a whole bunch of process steps that validates whether me, as a customer or a potential customer, is credit worthy enough to do business with you. Now, now w- would you hang that off of a customer or would you hang it off of a purchase? For, well, that would depend on the process that it's consumed in. So I would, if, if you're telling me that in your department, what you do is take you know, potential customers in and spit out uh, credit worthiness ratings out of the other side, right. you may well be a good candidate for, for creating a service. And we'll take the workflow that you currently do, you know, potentially manually with faxes and phones and so on. And you'll help me to learn how to automate that as part of a, 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 a part of a service, which we'll ultimately deploy into our SOA. Now, you won't know necessarily you know, where, you, where your inputs come from, where your outputs go to. And similarly, when we deploy that credit rating service onto the ecosystem, it won't know where its inputs come from or outputs go to. But as part of some larger, uh, if you like, orchestrating activity, you may well have um, you know, customers being lined up in some sales process and, you know, um, all of the kind of back-end ordering and so on happening in some other process, which will be uh, joined together with the credit worthiness um, service to produce some end-to-end business value, you know, so to get the customer in the door and to get boxes shipped to them out of the warehouse. So speaking of non-sequiturs, which is my favorite non-sequitur segue, um, the enterprise service bus, we've talked about this recently with Christian Wire, uh, and they're working at Microsoft on on their own kind of thing. This plays a role in an SOA, uh, typically. What are the pitfalls? And first of all, what is an enterprise service bus? And what are the what are some of the gotchas that you can run into? So I really wish I knew what an enterprise service bus was, but there are there are so many uh, um, uh, interpretations of ESB. There are almost as many as SOA. Um, but I typically take an enterprise service bus to be a framework for for connecting um, services or systems together. And in and of itself, that, that sounds fairly innocuous, except that the major pitfall with taking the ESB approach is that it, it increases coupling, which is sort of ironic because SOAs are meant to be loosely coupled. Right. So what happens when you tend to deploy an ESB is that your integration work becomes um, entirely ESB-centric. So instead of co-locating the necessary integration software with your service, with your, your process logic, you tend to push your integration stuff into the ESB box. And this has a couple of rather dangerous side effects, really. Firstly, that you, you stop becoming open. You become very much more um, centered around the framework that you're using for integration, which is typically someone else's framework, one that you buy or download. And secondly, and perhaps much more damagingly, is that it encourages the notion that integration is an afterthought. So I'm going to build this process, I'm going to buy this application, I'm going to build this software out, and then later on the integration team is going to come along like a sweeper 
and managed to plumb all this stuff together for me. So integration becomes an afterthought rather than being a first-class citizen in the development of enterprise software. And both of those taken together tends to mean that you start to build proprietary integration as an afterthought in your enterprise, which is kind of weird because the lifeblood of an enterprise is its network. It's its ability to flow information around people, around computer systems, and so on. And yet the ESB encourages these, these two rather dangerous anti-patterns, which I'd kind of like to avoid. So it's sort of like throwing everything in the ESB rather than keeping it separate. So you're sort of violating the explicit boundary rule there. Absolutely. In fact, you, although your services probably won't know about each other, so relative to one another, their coupling isn't increased, all of them become quite tightly coupled to the integration framework you've chosen, which really does violate that tenet, yes. Services really shouldn't know um, about you know, whichever particular uh, transport they're, they're using to communicate with each other. They should only be interested in the content of messages that they consume and produce. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zoom. Now, on the other side, um, what's the what's the benefit of using an enterprise service bus? I mean, what is the what it, what it, what's the touted benefit anyway? So the, the touted benefit is that you get um, a, a single integration framework for all of your needs. And as a developer, you can forget about all this, you know, you know this hard stuff that we developers can't can't tackle because we're too dim or something. Um, like security and like reliability, uh, th- those things you know are out of reach of your average developer. So forget about them. There's magic here that takes care of all that for you. Single, um, single, single framework for all of your integration needs. And um, and and at the developer level, you know that that's it. You're given this this software, you plumb into it, and magic happens, and you don't have to worry about it. Up at the CIO level. Similar kind of magic occurs. So you, you finish your round of golf with your with your favorite vendor. You you hand over several million dollars, and they now tell you that your, all of your integration problems are gone because the bus takes care of them all. And that's just an incredible gross oversimplification. And in those situations, I can't help but think that my CIO has uh, has really neglected his duty of care to the enterprise's longevity. So it seems to me with Enterprise Service Bus, it almost sounds like, on one hand, you could say this is the total manifestation of SOA, and on the other hand, you could say this is moving away from some of those principles because we get to this much more closed architecture. And it seems to me that SOA implementing a lot of the WS standards is a very open form of what could be called an Enterprise Service Bus, just bringing all of those different resources to a common bus, if that bus is web services with sort of standard rules, the WS tile rules for defining a transaction and a security role and so forth, you've got a very open enterprise service bus. Yeah, and I would just to add to that, 
Richard. I think that uh, what we get out of the box in Windows Communication Framework is, um, you know, goes pretty far to helping us deal with those issues that that uh, Jim was just talking about, like security and and integration. And it sure, sure as heck, makes it easy to uh, to do the the plumbing code, quote unquote. That's that is supposedly so difficult. Absolutely, and you know, I have. Um the the utmost respect for for WCF because it it's really tried to do a good job in in this arena and, and what things like WCF and 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 its and its friends over on the Java side of the world give you is is a very proto- protocol centric viewpoint into services it tells you, you know, if you look at the metadata that WCF, WCF produces when you deploy a service it tells you about the messages that the uh, the service can can uh, consume and produce. It tells you about a transport that it binds to, and it gives you a whole bunch of other metadata around security and reliable messaging and so forth. And the nice thing about that is it, it is open. Um, it, it's often been called um, WS Fabric to distinguish it from from the ESB style approaches. In, in that it provides a completely um, neutral fabric for for sending messages around your around your enterprise and and indeed more broadly. So it does kind of do the same stuff that an ESB does for you, but it does so in a way which doesn't lock you into a particular piece of middleware. In fact, for a given service, I'm going to make a decision to deploy. Typically, my, you know, my favorite platform, because it is the least bad web services platform, is WCF. So I want to deploy my service in, in, as a WCF service and have it take care of its own plumbing. And that's important. It ties back into the incremental stuff we spoke about earlier. If I'm deploying just enough integration middleware to support my service, I don't need to deploy any more. So I don't need to take a big upfront bet, gamble, on deploying a bunch of you know enterprise-wide infrastructure like an ESB, because I'm just delivering incrementally my integration infrastructure as part of my normal day-to-day delivery of business process automation. And this also makes sure that integration isn't an afterthought that there's no notion of an integration team coming along after the fact and sweeping up. As I'm building my business logic, I'm building out the messages that the business logic emits and consumes. And I'm capturing that in my in my WCF contract, and I'm sharing it around my SOA ecosystem. So it sounds to me like you're sort of down on ESB and pro WCF. <laughs> yes, I think I want to love WCF. I really do. Um, because it really did a good job um, of separating out a bunch of concerns that weren't separate in as an web services in the early Java web services and so on. So the notion of a contract being a first-class citizen in WCF really warms my heart. Now I hear a however coming. Um, okay, I'll state it explicitly. Here's a however. I, I really feel for the guys build, building WCF because their contracts end up being whizzed up on the wire. So although um, you know, there is an opportunity to uh, not necessarily stick with WSDL because WSDL is quite a constraining metadata format for enterprise computing. Now, I, I have a quote. I believe it's from your blog. Winners uh, okay. don't use WSDL. <laughs> That's probably one of the more polite, polite quotes on my blog. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I've kind of gone to pot now. Um, so. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to re- derail you there. <laughs> That's quite okay. So I, but I'll you were about to go off on Wisdom, and I I wanted to get that quote into the yeah, air. Yeah, it was a meatball. Okay, go I'll, ahead, knock it out let, of the park, man. Let me go man. off on Wisdom. So, so, 
so back in the early days of WSDL, we, 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 we didn't really know much about how this, how this whole web services thing was going to come together. And we were just really happy that we could get object-to-object interop between .NET and Java. I mean, it sounds easy now, but back in the day, this is, you know, eight years ago, this stuff really was a revelation that we could do this for free with commodity tooling. And so WSDL 1.1 you know, um, major step forward. However, as we kind of grew and we learned that SOAP was perhaps better for as, as, a, as an envelope, as a messaging mechanism rather than as an RPC mechanism, and we saw that SOAP Section 5, the RPC stuff, got deprecated and so on, WSDL didn't keep up. WSDL should have been a protocol description toolkit. And what I mean by that is I should be able to describe the messaging behavior of my service. You know, kind of purchase order comes in, some confirmation messages flow around, and then an invoice goes out, and there may be decisions and you know, parallel messages and all that kind of stuff that naturally reflects the messaging behavior of my service. Unfortunately, WSDL can't do that. Um, even WSDL 2, you can't do that. And um, although the WSDL 2 guys will tell me that WSDL 2 is extensible, the fact of the matter is that if I want any predictability, if I want you guys to be able to consume my WSDL 2 description, I'm stuck with, with what the publishers of WSDL 2 gave me, which is at most request response plus fault. Now, this is happy days for, uh, you know, for the WCF guys because it means it maps quite naturally onto the uh, uh, you know, parameters in return value plus exception model that, that we see in, in, uh, in, the, in the .NET framework and over on the Java side. But it's not so good for those of us that think in terms of workflows and messages because it limits us to request response messages, which we can't trivially correlate from uh, um, bet- uh, between. Now, I would say in the last year or so, there's been a, a resurgence in the term REST, R-E-S-T, yeah. to describe the basic, you know, forget about WSDL and forget about just the basic HTTP architecture and uh, of, you know, request response. But you've you've taken this one step further um, and, and talk about a messaging oriented REST, like a, a message centric REST called MEST. MEST. So MEST was a was a term that again Savas Perestatidis at Microsoft and myself coined probably back in two thousand four. So we've we've always had a fairly uh, jovial kind of uh, fun relationship with the with the with the web guys with uh, with the Mark Bakers and so on of this world. And we were very interested in what happens if you take the semantics of a particular business operation and drop it all inside an envelope. And, you know, so the, the line of business data plus all of the metadata. And that was the kind of model that, that we thought web services would, would veer towards, a kind of very loosely coupled asynchronous message-centric model where when a service receives a message, it contains some, that message contains some metadata, which sets the processing context for that message some line of business data, which is the, the business payload that the service will ultimately um, process. And we saw that as a very kind of loose coupled, you know, messages come in, messages come out, messages flowing around the network, around the fabric kind of idea. And the reason we, we, we coined the term MEST was it was a deliberate um, uh, doff of the cap, if you like, to the REST guys who got a very, themselves a very loosely coupled, highly scalable architecture. Um, where the two visions kind of frayed, if you like, was that the rest vision has now looked like it's, 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 it's coming out on top because they have managed to produce a very scalable, loosely coupled architecture for, for large services, whereas the web services um, vision specifically didn't really go message-centric. It, it still stayed very much as a kind of request-response RPC-style uh, um, formula, which we know isn't so good for building these large, loosely coupled systems because state at the boundaries is, is just very painful. 
So we've talked about rest and mess, but we haven't really defined them what they are. Maybe we could just sort of determine, Jason, you know, maybe we could just uh, define some of these concepts to put them in context. Sure. So we had a brief chat about mess, and and mess really is about a a message-centric, asynchronous message-centric philosophy, where business messages plus their metadata flow around the network. The differentiator between mess and rest is that MEST has no notion of an interface. All it has is the equivalent of you know, kind of message queues or, or letterboxes that you drop stuff in, so it's quite unconstrained in that way. The REST guys take their inspiration from the architecture of the web, so they have quite a different architectural style where instead of having messages be exchanged between services, those services expose a whole bunch of resources, which, are, which uh, for us as, as uh, business workflow guys, tend to be business-meaningful entities that I can interact with. And the way I interact with them is constrained and described by HTTP. So if I know how, to, how HTTP works, it means I know how to interact with a particular resource, so I can um, ask for that resource's representation, which means effectively get a copy of that document, or I can change that resource's representation. I can, I can uh, push changes out to that document, to that resource, so you've got two different models of, of um, distributed systems there. And it, just to define them, REST, uh, represent, representational state transfer, right? Absolutely. So REST uh, term was coined originally by uh, Roy Fielding in his PhD thesis back in 2000, where he was looking at um, successful distributed systems and network architectures, and he picked the web as, as the primary example. And the, the REST architecture was, an archi- was a style that he uh, derived by looking at what makes the web work. And REST isn't necessarily uh, tightly coupled to the web, but the web is the most prominent and practical uh, uh, manifestation we have of, of a RESTful architecture in the wild. Right. And MEST is message transfer. Yeah, so we, uh, we were, I realize it's a bit of a stretch, but we really did want to um, give our thanks to the REST guys who had influenced our thinking. So MEST was kind of half, half joking, half right. tongue in cheek, <laughs> but kind of uh, a thank you to those REST guys for influencing us. Okay. And Jason, let's talk, talk about that. Sure. So um, the, the web itself supports a whole myriad of formats, XML being the one that we're all kind of most familiar with. But there's no reason why structured information um, can't be conveyed to and from resources in alternative representation formats. JSON, JavaScript object notation, is one such such, uh, representation format, which happens to have the advantage that you can consume it very readily uh, uh, programmatically, particularly, obviously, in JavaScript. But the web itself doesn't really care too much about the media formats that you're using. It has a whole bunch of ones that you know of, 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 of types that you can use, um, which are readily recognised. It just so happens that conveying um, computer-to-computer interactions in MP3s or JPEGs or so on is a whole lot harder than doing it in XML or JSON. So it just increases the. It's really a battle of the serialization. I've got a chunk of data mapped in memory, and I got to get it somewhere else in a relatively agnostic form. Yeah. So I convert it, and how hard is that conversion? Both in both directions. Sure, and you, you also have to appreciate that your, the consumers of your service will have certain expectations too. If I'm uh, if I'm a, a you know a gunslinging JavaScript guy, then I'm absolutely going to be pressing you to give me the the resource representations in JSON because it makes my life easier. If I've never heard of JSON, then the chances are I'm going to want something like XML or CSV right. because it's easier for me to process. 
I think a, a, a good web service will naturally offer different resource representations anyway. Binary formats. I'm sending binary data across these messages has always been a kind of a challenge. And I guess the, the sort of the base 64 encoded, um, uh, encoding is the way it's done most of the time. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I've, I've heard everything from, you know, people trying to, uh, use the HTTP transport just for binary things, uh, going both ways. And also then there was some talk about compiled XML or, you know, a binary XML. What, what, are, what yeah. are your thoughts on that whole binary data thing? So I think it's very context specific. If, if I really do have a situation where some binary format is the most appropriate, uh, representation format, then on the web, in the, in the rest world, that, that's handled relatively trivially. It's just an, it's just another media type. And I, you know, my, when I, when I get that document, I know the media type, I interpret it in a, in a certain way. So it really comes down to um, what I want as a consumer of the of the resources and what and the lengths that you're willing to go as the provider of those resources. If you're looking at something like we're going to use binary for optimization purposes, for performance purposes, then I would suggest using things like zip and so on uh, in that area, just because it makes your know, transmission times less. I was thinking of something like you're going to encode a little audio clip, like an MP3, in a message. Yeah. You know, where where my first thought would be, well, let's see if we can just pass the URL and then somehow on the other side download that directly through HTTP. Sometimes you want that binary data that can't be expressed any other way to 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 travel along with the message. Sure. So it depends if you're if, 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 you know, which metaphor you pick. I think if you pick the messaging metaphor, you would package up that that binary blob. And you would pass it along in some in some format. Maybe you'd use something like you know, mTOM or, or so with attachments or something like that. In the web world, the URI would be the way to do it. You would you, know, you you would pass me a URI. I'd dereference that URI. I'd realize you know there's, obviously there's a HTTP interface that I can use, so I can you know, perhaps get that resource. That resource would come to me with some media type indicator, so I know how to interpret it when it arrives. Um, and using that, of course, I'm leveraging the, the, the benefits of the web, including you know, significant distributed caching and so on. So that, that kind of URI-centric architecture works best on the web. Um, for the messaging architecture, you know, en- encode in some reason- reasonable binary format and send it over to me, be that you know, uh, Java bytecode or some binary XML or whatever. That, that, that's your pick. Yeah. Jim, let's uh, let's jump back to the WS standards a little bit. Uh, obviously, they're all in flux, and I often get the sense that many of them are really oriented on this form of SOA that I just don't see in the wild, where I'm I'm putting enterprise services out to the world. Which ones do you think are really important internally and, and sort of in the gorilla SOA model? Sure. Um, so, I actually think. Well, I, <laughs> let me back up a second. In terms of those ones that are important, it's kind of difficult for me to say because you know, I've been involved in some of these standards. Obviously, at, that, at those points in, in my life, I thought they were important. But I guess the best measure of importance or that I can hope to aspire to is, is use. And so I see um, things like WS Security, that whole suite of, of, of uh, fundamental security protocols being the most important because they're the ones that enterprises typically gravitate towards first. Before an enterprise has figured out that it needs you know, reliability or transactionality, security, you know, particularly privacy, um, authorization, and authentication tend to be the stuff that people want first. 
just because everybody gets that they need that even before they start. Absolutely. People often know the sensitivity of the information they're going to be dealing with. So they've got a good idea about the security policy that they need to wrap around specific services, that you must be a director to be able to interact with the service and you must only interact with it in a, in a way that makes sure the messages are private and, and uh, tamper-proof and so on. So that, but, You know, that, and not to interrupt so much, but that seems to be thinking a layer above what most people think of with security, where they think, I'm just going to transport this over HTTPS so that I'm naturally authenticated and encrypted. Sure. Um, so for the web services folks, in fact, you've got the, the advantage of, 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 of both. If you're very, very paranoid, you might choose to use HTTPS as your transport layer, as well as having the message level security that the WS security stack gives you as well. Okay, so you would use the two in, in together, but I, I got to think that the WS security spec gives us that additional ability to discriminate specific users and then and use that in a data context in some way to limit the data access. Well, and also limit the encryption, right? You can you can pick which fields are encrypted rather than encrypting the whole stream, which improves absolutely. So you're looking at uh, you really are looking at two different layers in the network stack. So you can we can assume any underlying transport for our SOAP messages. So if we assume HTTPS, that's already a fairly private channel, point-to-point -point channel between systems. However, that only gets us you know, effectively from web client to web server. If the messages that we're passing through have, have a longer transit path than that, perhaps this web server is a gateway, we'd actually like to make sure that the privacy and, and, uh, and, and tamper-proof uh, features of that message are present right the way from the sender all the way through to the ultimate recipient, which may be a server you know, some number of hops away from the HTTPS channel that we brought the message into the enterprise on. And, of course, underneath, it, I think the best compliment you can say about WS security is that the base spec, which is now a couple of years old, is still pretty stable. Nobody's really tweaked it much. It's mostly just the, the specifications inside of it, like federation and authorization and stuff, that have gotten most of the work from there. Absolutely. So the, the kind of... Um, the, the basic security stuff, is it, it's a done deal. In fact, a, a colleague of mine um, down in Sydney, Australia, Halbert Scogswood, um, is the world's authority on this, as far as I can tell. And he, even he's very happy with the basic WS security stuff. When it gets up into you know, the, the, the federation kind of level, that stuff seems a bit hazier. And I don't see an appetite in the clients I'm working for for getting into that kind of stuff just yet. They're comfortable now with basic security, but they're not yet comfortable with, you know, doing trust you know, having trusted zones if you like using web services technology they prefer to manage that by some other means well and when has federating identity not been a pain as soon as i have to trust somebody else's security store i have problems absolutely um and so you know in in, in those cases people have tended to shy away from using that technology and, and i'm you know i'm fairly from my limited knowledge of security, I'm not a security specialist, I can kind of you know, architecturally see how this fits, but I still don't see people rushing to use it right now. And I think there's a kind of chicken and egg situation here, but because people aren't using it too much, people are a bit wary of using it. Because people are wary of using it, they, they, they don't use it too much. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, change is right. good. You go first. You go first. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, we you so quickly outlined three security, which I think we've nailed, um, reliable messaging, and then the other one was transactions. Actually, maybe we should do transactions first because I think a lot of folks get this idea of I want to be able to coordinate a transaction between two services. Absolutely. So in the classic web services case, um, uh, and I should own up here that I've been involved with a few transaction protocols in my web services lifetime. 
Um, the idea is that you just want to get a consistent uh, business outcome from each of the services. So, for example, if I want to go um, come over to to North America, I'm going to need a I'm going to need a, a, an airplane ticket. And I want to hire a car when I arrive, and I'd like for both of those things to happen or logically not happen if there's a failure along the way. And this is this, this is kind of different from yeah. You know, I don't want to imply that we're doing strong database transactions here. What we're right. actually doing is looking to get an agreement between two business parties. Would you, as the as the car hire provider, give me a car on these dates? Yes, great. Would you, as the uh, as, as as an airline, agree to give me a seat on this aeroplane on this date? Yes, brilliant. In that case, I'm happy. Let's both proceed to to uh, to uh, to an outcome that, I, that that my preferred outcome. On the other hand, if one of those providers can't give me either a ticket or a car, I may choose to pull out of that transaction and ask both of those um, uh, providers to cancel any tentative work we might have done. Right. Well, and that feels like, and I'm showing my database roots here, that feels like a two-phase commit where I'm going off on the first phase and saying, would you do this? Don't do it. Just tell me you would. Absolutely. So the difference between something like um, XA, you know, a very strict two-phase commit down at the database level, and this kind of you know, two-phase consensus protocol is, is literally that. I, I, I don't know for sure, and in fact, I expect you not to do any locking for me during the, during the two-phase commit. I expect you to lie to me, in fact, and say, yep, I'm happy to do business with you. And only when we come necessarily to uh, you know, close, off, close off the commit will then any uh, issues arise potentially. But then for me as a programmer, I have, you know, the nice thing about a true two-phase is I know if I got agreement by all the parties, the transaction's going to complete. Absolutely. If we're in a, and you use the word consensus, which I like a lot. If we're at a consensus phase, now we go for the commit. I do have to, as a programmer, deal with the possibility of failure. Absolutely. So you, you know for sure, you, the only point that you know for sure that your, um, that your requests have been honored is, is at the end of the two phase. Right. And, um, you know, as a programmer, when I'm developing these services as well, I don't have the luxury, as I did with database transactions, of letting the database work this out for me. Because transactions in, in, a, in an SOA are the enemy of scalability and availability. So I yeah, have you to, don't want to hang on to the resource. That's the absolutely. issue. Absolutely. So, so I'm going to have to, you know, uh, if I do lock things, I have to lock them for the briefest moment because I'm going to be serving many customers typically and none of, you know, none of whom I want to allow to lock things because that produces an inadvertent or even deliberate denial of service against my service. Well, and, and I guess the big distinction here is that in the typical coordinated transaction model, uh, we've got a pretty clean line of how long this stuff's going to take. Absolutely. And we really don't have that in web services. You're, 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 if, if you inadvertently allow your lockable resources to be exposed to the web or to a web service, then you're in trouble, absolutely, because you yeah, cannot You will predict. pay a penalty. You, you can't predict the behavior of your users, and if users figure out that they can lock you without penalty on their behalf, then they will do it. In fact, if I could lock a whole bunch of seats on a BA airplane just in case I wanted to pick one of them, I would. But, you know, BA and so on are clever enough to uh, to uh, decouple their, their underlying uh, resource locking from the image that they show me uh, on, on their uh, applications. Yeah, with lots of caveats and complexity to coding Absolutely. accordingly. For, for me, Amazon is, is, the, uh, is, is the primary model. But, you know, it's funny that Amazon always tell me yes. <laughs> I, I don't know how they do it. 
But then, you know, whenever I want to buy something from Amazon, it's always there, it's always in stock, it's always ready to ship in some reasonable number of days. And then it's only later, if something goes wrong, that Amazon start to compensate. So they have a kind of almost lazy compensation strategy that if the book is or, or item is found to be out of stock, they email me and say, hey, it's out of stock. Do you still want it? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been through this cycle because my tastes to, are towards the eclectic. I've been through this cycle where they told me, yeah, I've got that book. I order it. It says, it's going to be delayed in delivery. And then it's going to be delayed some more. And now, at every time they're offering, we'll cancel the order, no penalty to you. Right. But they strung out that discussion of, you know, where we're trying here for the book, we're trying there for the book, and so forth, to finally say, wow, we can't get that book. Absolutely. And it's, you know, in that case, it's when, when the book hits the doormat, you've got it, transaction complete. Yeah. But what they've got in the middle is a, is a lump of compensatory logic that keeps you as the end user quite, quite decoupled from any, you know, lockable records in a database they might have somewhere. Okay. You know, it's not a bad model. No, it works. It works well. But as a developer, I have to be, uh, I have to understand that I can no longer just, you know, bring up a whole bunch of um, ADO.net code and expect the database to solve my problems. Right. Amazon's written a tremendous amount of code to make a transaction failure take months and be pleasant. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's a fantastic quote. The reliable messaging stuff is actually relatively straightforward, too. It's, um, it, it's a protocol where we tag uh, message sequence metadata into messages and recipients of messages may notice when they're missing a sequence number or two, and they can ask for retransmission. Um, so the protocol itself is relatively straightforward. Look for gaps in numbers, and then ask for those gaps to be filled in if you find they're missing. There are some um, subtleties around how to build that. You know, for example, if I'm the sender of a message, I have to hold on to that message until I'm quite sure that it's been axed by the recipient, because I may be asked at any point until I've been axed to retransmit. But ultimately, this stuff's not really uh, too dissimilar from, from you know, the kind of stuff that goes on way down the stack in TCP. I mean, the concepts are pretty straightforward. It's just how are we going to recover from a message that never showed up? Absolutely. So the, the, the irony of reliable messaging is that it's not reliable messaging. Um, it, it can cover up glitches. So you it's can, recoverable messaging. It's, it's, it's somewhat recoverable. So it, it, will, it will cover the odd glitch where you know, the odd message or two goes missing. But the minute that a meteorite smashes through your data center, no, no amount of reliable messaging on the planet is going to help you recover immediately from that catastrophe. But, you are going to, but the outside world is going to get a clear notice that their, their, their messages didn't get delivered. Absolutely. Um, what I can, so although I think um, you know, WS Reliable Messaging and friends have some validity, I actually think a much more robust pattern uh, is to make your services aware of the protocols to which they conform. And I know that sounds really lofty, but what I actually mean is if you, if you write your services so that they are message-centric, so that they understand that message A is followed by message B, followed by message C or message D, then those services know when something's gone wrong and they can be programmed robustly to react to the failure of a message. The problem with WS Reliable Messaging, and, and, you know, and yeah, forgive me to my friends that were involved writing some of those specs, but the problem is that it encourages sloppy thinking on the part of the service developer again. Much, if you take Wizzle and WS Reliable Messaging, the, the, the very appealing thought is, okay, I'm reliable now. I don't need to worry about the protocol that my service works with. I can just do this RPC-style thing, and the reliable messaging protocol will take care of any glitches, which is only true up to a point. And when you get an actual you know, problematic failure, which WS Reliable Messaging can't mask, 
it leaks at a really inopportune moment and cripples your service. So I don't actually, although I can actually see the utility, when I'm building services, I tend to avoid it because I want my services to know when there should be a message there for them and to take proactive action. It's more robust that way to chase down those messages when they don't arrive. So if you imagine that we're having a a conversation now and you go dead for a while, I'm going to get a bit impatient and kind of think, okay, has the phone gone? Uh, No, phone still seems to be there. I'm going to say, hey, guys, can you still hear me? You guys may respond. And then we'll try to resume the conversation that way. And we do that because we're implicitly aware of the protocol. We're implicitly aware that if there isn't a voice that talks to me across the phone every few seconds, that something's gone wrong and I need, you know, my service needs to recover from that. And I just don't think that we can delegate those quite, well, sometimes quite tricky recovery characteristics to a fairly generic protocol like the reliable messaging protocols. Well, and and so you hit on the key thing, which is that in that case, the service, which is you and I, has to be protocol conscious to know what the staged recovery mechanism looks like. I love the analogy of driving through a, a fast food restaurant and ordering a you know a burger or something like that, and uh, where the person on the on the other end is asking you you know uh, you know what do you want and uh, you know burgers or whatever do you want fries or that, and uh, you're you're calling for information you know yeah, can I help you yes uh, in uh, Mystic. What? You know? <laughs> can, Absolutely. Can you, actually case, be pretty if you, funny. If you, if you commit a protocol violation, then it's pretty obvious. And you go back to a part of the protocol, which you can both agree on, and you start again. In the case of the driver, it could be, yes, hello again, sir. Can you hear me? <laughs> right, exactly. Let's just figure out what we really know. Okay. Back to my overall attack on webs, uh, on the WS standards. If you hate WSDL, don't you automatically hate web services as a whole? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking specifically about uh, Steve Laughlin's blog post, I guess about a year ago, where the he was really talking about my IBM talking about REST and just saying, look, if they what they've done to, with WSDL makes all of this evil. And he, I really gave the impression that the WS standards themselves would fail because they've been tainted by WSDL. So the unfortunate thing is for a lot of these standards that WSDL is the underpinning, and WSDL really is the Achilles heel in the whole stack. However, we we don't necessarily have to be stuck with WSDL. WSDL is one possible and very limited contract description language. There are others. Uh, There is SSDL, which is the SOAP Service Description Language, uh, written by a bunch of researchers and academics, and, uh, and that just explored the concepts of what happens if you let protocols be a first-class citizen in your web services. And that was actually implemented by a guy called Patrick Fenazier, who happens to be a colleague of mine in ThoughtWorks London now. And he built an open-source toolkit called Soya, which, which sits atop WCF and strips out all of that nasty whizzle bits of WCF and allows you to build contracts which are message-centric. And the metadata, instead of being uh, exposed in WSDL, gets exposed in SSDL, which gives you those nice protocol-like descriptions that we were just talking about. gives you the ability to actually create protocols and build out services from metadata based on those protocols very easily using tooling, except instead of them being RPC-like request-response limited protocols, these are, these are whole workflows described in terms of their messages. And it's an interesting, I, I almost wonder if it's just that we've got to make sure that the folks who are working on these specs keep in their mind that, to make themselves independent of wisdom, just to Absolutely. think that way. And I don't know that I get a sense that they're really doing that. 
No, I mean, WSDL provides such an, uh, you know, a, a, a widespread um, accepted metadata description that people just want to use it. You know, I've, right. I've seen, you know, various, particularly back in my transaction days, I've seen various specs that were all um, built atop WSDL because it was the easiest thing there. And in fact, for a long time, it was the only thing there. And you had, you know, you had the, the message parts of WSDL that people could use to uh, describe their messages. Yeah, so you've got all of these specifications which all use WSDL as their, as their basis because it's the only thing that was available to them. It's the only thing that the toolkit supported. Um, and, and really, because of that, WSDL enjoys this very privileged position. Um, it's the only, it's the only you know, standard in the game, so you, you're, you're forced into it. However, if you look at some of the specifications, I'm thinking really around some of the transaction specs that I was involved right. with. The first steps there, we always talked about messages. And then we had to go through this conscious phase, if you like, of thinking, okay, can we pair this message with this message? Yes, that becomes a WSDL operation. So we had to make this fairly natural asynchronous messaging specs, these, these fairly asynchronous messaging specs, retrofitted to fit this kind of request response style that, which was all WSDL would allow us. However, if, you know, if, if that, if we had some other, you know, protocol centric metadata description language, then we wouldn't have to have done that. So if you think now about the broader WS star stack, because it's predicated on WSDL, a lot of that feels very request response. Now, it may right. not be that you know, it's a problem for some of those protocols. Maybe some of those protocols really are a very request response in nature, in which case WSDL is a great fit. But other protocols which have you know, a more asynchronous flavor, uh, again, I'm thinking of the transaction protocols, WSDL really was quite poor and limiting. Okay, Jim, we're just about out of time, and, and this is a, a total non-sequitur, but I couldn't leave it alone, because I think it's a whole other show we could do sometime in the future. I'm just going to grab a title from your tech-ed roster here. Okay. Uh, learning to live with static typing fascist and dynamic typing fanboy in your enterprise. Oh! <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we have some more personas to add to that list. <laughs> Just what a great! They actually allowed you to use that title. Yes, they did. So that's um, awesome. So the the guys who organised TechEd down in this was in Australia and New Zealand. They, they right. really do have a, a, a very keen sense of humour. In fact, not only did they let us use that title, they let us run a programming session on the architecture track, um, wow. which I'm which I'm forever grateful for because it was such a good fun session. And you could have just called that session C Sharp 3.0 versus Ruby. Yeah, we could have, but then that would have been boring. Yeah, no fun at all. <laughs> so the, the the guy that really led that was was my colleague James Crisp. He lives down in Sydney in Australia, and uh, we were just looking for for a fun knockabout. He's a he's a .NET and Ruby polyglot. I'm 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 where I can a C sharp kind of guy. So we just thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm sick of being beaten up by all the Ruby guys about how crummy my chosen platform is. Let's see how it really stacks up. Right. I thought we had a very you know, frank and quite funny exchange of discussions at TechEd. It was quite a good thing to do. Cool. Uh, we've got to get that to TechEd US. What a great idea. And, yeah, it would be great, actually. That's a yeah. good idea for a panel discussion at TechEd, oh, actually. Uh, I think it's a whole other show. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we can't do it now. Let's just try and pull these things together. So if I have listened closely enough today... I know that uh, Gorilla SOA is really that sort of agile mentality of don't bite off too much. There's something about SOA that naturally leads you to waterfall. So resist, pick the smallest bite you can to still build services that are coherent to the business Absolutely. rather than to the, the, the software itself. Incrementally. Absolutely. Incremental builds. 
is what you're and saying. And yeah, be prepared to go back and revisit and modify those services as we grow them larger across the enterprise. Absolutely. And just maybe as, a, as an, an add-on to that, in fact, your business people become your, your IT architects because as they change their business processes, you're effectively get, you know, you're, you're the Waldo arms, which changes that in code for them. So you have this real nice consistency between what your business people are doing in the real world and the way your IT systems are functioning in the electronic world. And I think there's the key thing. Gorilla SOA is really about change-tolerant services. You bet. Hmm. Excellent. Jim, what can we say? This has been a fantastic hour. Uh, we could talk for another hour easily, but uh, it's an hour show. And uh, maybe we'll have you back to uh, discuss more of your thoughts as they well, come thanks, to you. Guys. I've really enjoyed my time talking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. And uh, most excellent. Thank you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.